I think most of us like a really good story. We see ourselves in the action, sometimes with a hero, sometimes with a villain. And can I tell you that some of the best stories I think ever read are in the Bible. There you find stories of murder, stories of intrigue, politics, history, of war, the romance. And I'm sure you know the story about how the walls of Jericho fell. Remember that? Jericho is probably the oldest city in the world. Harry and I have been there a couple of times. You remember the Israel, uh, the army of Israel marched on the wall day after day seven times, and then on the seventh time, they marked seven times and the wall came down. It makes a great song. It really does. But hidden behind this story is another story. The story of defeat. You see, Jericho was a major corporate city. And the next city was a much smaller city as they, as they moved into the land. That was the city of Ai. Much smaller, less fortified. And so they assumed that in the victory of Jericho, this is going to be easy. And we would say this is a piece of cake. So instead, what happened with Ai is that the Israelite army was broken and sent running with their tails between their legs. Joshua, the Israelite commander, is frankly way more than puzzled. Like, what happened? So we start with interrogation to find out the cause of this defeat, where it lay. And it all comes down to a man called Achan. Achan disobeyed an order not to plunder. He stole some things he should not have stolen. He stole some gold and silver. We can kind of understand that. He stole a coat, which was, um, we really understand, it was really the latest fashion. It was the most cheap thing you could find. And he hit him in the ground under his skin. And the story goes on like this. Joshua came to him and said, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, give him praise. Tell me, what have you done? Don't hide it from me. And Achan replied and said, It's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder in the plunder, beautiful world from Babylonia. 200 shekels of silver and a wedding full of 50 shekels. I covered them though. And they're hidden in the ground under my tent. The silver's underneath. You see, we still think that you really got to hide it. And so God's final word in this area you found is following the Ten Commandments to his people as you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or male or female servant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And he said, I covet it. So we come to this last and final warning of God from the Ten Commandments. And we're challenged this morning, I think, to recognize the toxic disease of grief in our society. The desire for more and more, bigger and better, that's seductive and really a psychotic. You remember the Gospel of Luke, and there's a, a Jesus tells a story of a man who, frankly, is more than enough, more and more than enough to survive. But he still wanted more. What did he do? He told on his barn, told on his barn. They built bigger ones. That one life is all about it. It's just about climbing up the ladder to success. Is that all it is? You see, our contemporary culture, especially in North America, is plagued with the passion to possess. It plunges families into financial crisis. Credit mortgages are futures. Money we don't have is really committed years ahead. We've seen several reports in the last number of months that Canada and Canadians now carry more personal debt than ever before. This past week, um, one of the news reports 
reported that for every dollar, this is the average, of course, for every dollar Canadians earn, they owe $1.63. That is the highest level of personal debt has ever been at. They're not sure where it really will be able to end. As we come to this season of Christmas, we start to walk to the stores and the malls, and we realize that this drive for more becomes all about control. Someone has said that people buy things that they can't afford to impress people they don't like for the money that they don't have. I don't know about your homes here in Canada, in Victoria. Um, the, the flyers are coming, probably getting out into our mailboxes and the apartments, not to give us information, but they're there frankly to seduce us. And their message really is that your happiness will be found in buying things. It seems us, I think, that the pleasure all of us are really looking for is to be found in what we do not already have. This city of prison can leave a strained, family breathless, ruined, and broke. Frankly, we've lost touch with reality. And I hope we've seen in these weeks that these ten words from God, the ten commandments, as we call them, they cut across the grain of our society. They challenge us to think and waste that our culture is lacking. They go against the current of popular philosophy. There's perhaps more truth in this final word of company than anything, than anything else. Edith <coughs> Schaefer, she was the wife of a man called Francis Schaefer, who was a pastor, a theologian, a philosopher, and went to move to Switzerland to set up a place where young people, particularly in the 60s and 70s, who were looking to find themselves to come and really find themselves with God. Edith Schaefer, she wrote a book, and in the inside of it, she says that this word of covenant is what she calls the inside of the cup. And what she means is that people can see on the outside what we steal, they can hear us what we lie, they can see what we cheat. These are visible. But covenant, Edith Schaefer says, is, excuse me, covenant is where the heart is. It does not expose what we're doing right away, rather than exposing what we desire. And the ultimate price of coveting does not lie in what we purchase and in our decent state the next month. The deadly cost of greed is really found in what is best for our heart. And one of the things that prevents us from doing something maybe harmful, maybe thinking harmful to us. For years we've had a campaign against smoking. We're told this is what it does to your body. The Bible does the same thing about coveting. It tells us the danger that come from a spirit of coveting, from a greedy lifestyle. Let me give you just some opinions this morning. You get some notes to go along with me. First of all, coveting chokes out the life changing influence of the Word of God. Jesus often told this truth in what he calls parables. Simple pictures taken from daily life. And, and he talked about a man who goes up the store and he, he casts the seed and falls. <coughs> he says, a kind of soil. <coughs> he said, sometimes the, the, the seed falls on, on good ground, the word of God, the word of the kingdom. Sometimes it falls on ground that's hard, and these ideas are fixed and inflexible. Sometimes it falls on shallow ground, where, where there's an initial enthusiasm. It just bursts up and then it just fades away. And then he said, sometimes the seed is thrown on which rocks and weeds work. Which means for us, I heard, to be. 
bring up the thought. The deceitfulness of what? The desire for other things come in and they choke the word. Making it unfruitful. And that is the spiritual peril that puts you in danger. All right, in your Timothy, people who get rich and want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish, humble desires to find man to be at women in the room and destruction. Because he says, <coughs> because he says, the love of money, that whole word, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, he says, even for money is one from the faith and pierce itself with many griefs. People are seduced by some of today's get rich schemes. There's something else that money can do. These people in the conflict. James says, what kind of fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desire that's bad inside you? you? You want something, you don't get it, so you kill and you cut it. But you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. When you have to go to sea, you ask for the wrong water, then you may simply spend it on your own pleasures. When there's an argument in a family when somebody dies, especially over a will, really simple. You follow the money. You follow the money. And then it suffocates and stifles the love of guidance. When people have said they were committed to what is called the Shabbat, in the of the Lord of <coughs> and we're called the love of God, called heart, soul, mind, and strength. That can be something. First John says this very simply. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. They do not come from the Father, but they come from the world. The world that his desires pass away. But the one who does the will of God writes forever. Greek tools. You see, it stains and marks and soils, holes, the inside of the cup, which is our heart. So what is the antidote to this cancer of the heart? What is the remedy to this psychotic lifestyle which plunges us deeper and deeper into death financially, that brought us emotionally at peace? that bankrupt us spiritually. The Bible has an angel. It calls us to live a life that is marked with a rare spiritual attitude, a rare spiritual dream. That is simply called contentment. Contentment doesn't mean that we just sit back in life and become comfortable. Rather, contentment is a state of the mind and the heart that understands that our meaning and our significance and our value as people does not come from buying more things. Our satisfaction does not come from what we have. The seductive voice of materialism says, if you only had this, you'd be happy. Thank you very much, Mr. Robinson. I've been struggling with my throat for the last couple of days. If you have this, your life will be more meaningful. All that is a lie. So thank you. Who is that? Humphrey? Thank you very much. You have a telling story. This is a you this is a little pot. This is a commercial break. Okay. Did I tell the story about Randy? Okay. In our very first church, um, Harry and I went there, we were just newly wed to the first church, and there was a young man in the congregation called Randy. And Randy was mentally challenged. And 
Randy a job. Randy is a fucking idiot. He gave Randy a job. And his job like every Sunday morning was to put a cup of water, a glass of water, up under the pulpit for me uh, if I wanted to drink. Which some Sundays I did once. But it didn't matter. If I didn't take a drink, Randy hit me. Fuck it all. You didn't take a drink of my life. <laughs> Sorry, man. So I learned that, um, that you take a drink of water, you drink of water, no matter whether you're thirsty or not, because that's why Randy would hit me. And I didn't want that. So I would take a drink of water. Randy just sit in the back door, just absolutely fine. He's always back because I take a drink of water. My very last Sunday there, we were at church about three years, a little over three years, then we're going to move to Calgary. And my very last Sunday, um, one of my friends, co called friends, um, put him up there. Instead of putting water, they filled him with seven up. <laughs> and Randy sat in the back and just living himself. He was in the time he could not continue something. Because he knew I would take a drink because I always did that. But this time it would not be water. It would be seven up. So I'll be willing to give you. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay, fine. Okay, fine. I, I, I will take a look at this because I do what you did. And um, I also don't want to hit me. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a very, very Chinese thing that I learned from this congregation. This water is not cold. <laughs> And we can take nothing out of it. 
And I think when we cool into that and get on that way and understand that, then we can live with contentment. We can strive with contentment. We can press on with contentment. Instead of grieving. I'll be content with what I do. And that will allow me to enjoy what I do. You know, there are no perfect jobs. Don't look at someone who makes more money than me. They will have more prestige or more power or whatever. If we think that contentment will come only as we climb the ladder of success, we may find that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Contentment comes by realizing the value of the skills and the gifts that God has given to us and then using them to the fullest. How about the thought that the people are most unhappy in the world, whatever the jobs are, are the people who are doing just enough to get by? Are the only work seem to be working when the boss is looking at them? I think those are unhappy kinds of people. Colossians says, whatever you do, do it heartily. Literally, that means from your soul. Do it heartily. For the Lord, and not just for men, not just because people are looking at you, but you do what you do, and you do it from the soul, out of your life, out of your heart to Jesus. Contentment comes, you see, when we work from the heart. And that kind of contentment, that doesn't deny the opportunity of promotion or getting ahead or moving into a new line of work or taking more training or advancing yourself. Not at all. In fact, they were content to be encouraged and stimulated us to do these things. But we do them with the honest realization that the promotion will not make us happier per se. The new job will not bring us more content. Rather, contentment is to lie within us in our relationship with God and understanding who God has given us to be again and what God has given us to be. I really have been one of the lucky people in life. I can put it that way. Because I've I really been able to do what I love. And I love what I do. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, some days it's hard work. There have been some things and some situations and churches that we have served that would move Harry to nice tears. Some things have given us a heavy heart. And that's from Paul just spoken. And I've had um, to bury a baby. That crushes me beyond anything you'll ever know. And also, some things give us, given us in our ministry like the greatest joy. It's been a very unique privilege to, um, this might sound strange to you, but it's been a very unique privilege to carry for you to be invited into intensive care to sit with someone day after day and hour after hour. To hold their hands and to pray for it's been a real privilege for families to invite us in when grandma or grandpa or whatever was dying. When we've sat and we've stumbled into the kingdom of heaven and glory. And there's things that have brought us to tears. But I've been able to do what I want. And I've loved what I do. You know, sometimes people say, you know, if it's lived our way over again, we would not change one thing. I think it's really stupid. I once bought a Toronto 63 Pontiac. It turned out to be a lemon. I would not do that again. For some of our mistakes, we just got a little Mistakes I wouldn't mind repeating. I'll be very honest with this one. Mistakes I would do over again. I would marry Harriet all over again. She's here this morning with me. And I would marry her all over again. 
She knows me a lot better now, so I'm not sure what she was doing that. I would love to see the kids. We get three kids for great kids. And our perfect. I run them all over again. They're really unique. And somehow in my life, I would serve God and serve the church. Because that's what God's calling me. And I've tried to do it for my life. Content. We need to be content with what we have. And that will allow us to share what we have to the fullest. To be content with what we have. And share that with the fullest. J. Paul Gaddy, one of the, from the very, very wealthy Gaddy Dynasty, was asked, How much money is enough? J. Paul Gaddy said, Just a little bit more. Did you see this week that the Powerball? in the U.S. lottery was $580 million with two million I would sense that the great majority of us would not know what to do with half $580 million dollars. You know, life will always be somebody with more money. There will always be somebody with a bigger home, a better car, a faster computer, for pastors, they'll always be pastors with a bigger church. And we just simply got to let that go. And have gratitude to God with contentment for what we have. And for most of us, that is much, much more than we need. The trouble with belief is that we con ourselves, we seduce ourselves into the kind of thinking that says, if I just had a little bit more, I would share more. That's not true. What brings Contentment is that we hold what we have as a spur of gratitude and generosity. You see, the fruit of contentment in our life is gratitude. <coughs> and the fruit of gratitude is generosity. And the book of Last Sunday, you may remember, is important as we come toward the end of our year. Our giving is running a little bit of advice. Some people will think, well, I'm waiting until I get home before I get home. Can I tell you honestly that that kind of thinking is false? You will not get you will not get more when you get more. We have to learn to give a little when we got a little, and then when we get more, we give more. We don't get the names of the planet and see what's left over that we give to the church. Rather we give to God and his church and his ministry to start of the month. And we ask him then to step into our finances to help us make the ends meet. Giving is really about trusting God. There was half of the teaching of the ministry of the children of Israel was made and the tithe would be ten percent. They actually had several tithes and offerings that came to a little over thirty percent by the way. The point is simple. For us as Christians, we believe that the ministry of the church and all God wants to do through BCBC here, both local and global, both within the walls and outside the walls, will be that as people give regularly, proportionately, and generously. If you give in that way, can I say thank you? And if you don't, you might want to start considering that seriously. Someone once said, Christians are called to be tithers and not trippers. It's a great story in the book of Exodus. Um, people are bringing all their gifts into the tabernacle, we'll kind of call that the church. Bringing all kinds of things. And then it's like Exodus 36. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough to do the work that God's commanded to be done. So Moses gave an order to send the word of the Lord again. No matter who is to make anything else an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Because they were ready to be getting more than enough of the work. Can you imagine? As the 
deacons and the finance department are sent out a meeting somewhere towards the end of December. And said, you know, if we come to the end of the year, we actually don't need any more. Because we got enough. We have more than enough for what we do. If you give us David in that kind of way that Moses is talking about, we would need special council meetings to decide what to do with the excess money. And we may have to tell you some Sundays, you know what, we're not taking the opportunity. We will simply have to give it all away. Amen. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. He said, Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously, that's an expression of contentment in the life of man, will reap generously. Each man is to give what is decided in his own heart. To give not for what can be under compulsion. Because he says, God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for the word cheerful there is literally the word hilarious, from which we get our word hilarity. And he folks, that we ought to clap and cheer when we give the offering this morning. <laughs> you Chinese might not do that. <laughs> Our society has lost touch with the reality. The demand of rushing to accumulate more and more claims to overwhelm us. The Bank of Canada has been telling us that for months. If we give in to the doctor's struggles in our society, more than we know, we will manage our spirit. Richard Foster, who was a quick physical wrote some years ago in the celebration of this apartment. He said, because we lack a divine sense, our need for security is left to led to an insane attachment to things. In our moments of weakness, we believe that things will bring us happiness. So we pray what we neither need or do our revival. We we don't need to fight people who do like our plan of philosophy leaves off. And here's the phrase, where plan of philosophy leaves off. Psychological of philosophy takes over. The mass media convinces us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. We need to speak the truth. And understand to say that it is our culture that is out of step with reality. So more than smoking will choke our lungs, more than transpacks will clog our arms, grief will stay inside of our spirit and blacken our soul. There is an antidote. There is a remedy. It is to be here, to breathe a pure air of contentment and conscience brightness for God. Only about this series of goodness and God. And we started this about 10 weeks ago. I hope it was a challenging and thoughtful view of the charitable we live in challenging and changing times. Not times for the faint-hearted and the fearful. We are again like Israel, living in a land of strange voices and seductive sounds. The Ten Commandments calls for a radical, counter-cultural lifestyle as the people of God. The more that the moral stage of our culture darkens and becomes distorted, the more important they will be. For God's people to stand in grace and to let His grace shine and to live out of His grace as His people. It is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ calls us. He is the one and one and only way to live in such a way that our land, all of our land, would be filled with His glory. And Jesus would shine. Yes? Jesus would shine. 